morning, everybody. I want to invite the children, if you want to go to children's church, your teacher will meet you in the back. Just an age-appropriate setting for them to learn the scriptures. While they're going, I just want to take a moment and thank you all. We, Lisa and I received your card for our fifth anniversary of coming to Trinity, and um, the, the comments were just such a blessing. Thank you all. I can't tell you what a blessing it is for us to serve in this church to be able to minister. I just, I, every once in a while I pinch myself and I go, I can't believe they called me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I remember when we candidated, I came out thinking, uh, on the plane flying out here going, I'm not the right guy. You know, this is, we're, this is gonna be a colossal mistake, but hey, you know, we'll get a free trip to California, so it won't be that bad. <laughs> and uh, uh, at the end of the week, Lisa said, so what do you think? And I went, this is my tribe, this is my people. <laughs> so thank you for accepting us, for calling us and for remembering our fifth anniversary. That, that is so kind. Um, you have been a blessing to us as much, as, or more than we have been a blessing to you. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at the word. Lord, we, we just sang in that song, In the Hours, when the snares of death surround us. And Lord, the snares of death are so close at hand and so elusive, the list really struck me. The snares of death include pride, ambition, love of ease, mammon, which is money, words that flatter and smiles that please. Lord, those, those things are not bad to think of words that flatter and smiles that please. We think of those as good things, but when we put those in a position they shouldn't be, when we, when we elevate money and flattery and all of those things into the position where we should be seeing you and how you recognize us, Lord, then they become snares to death because we begin to think of ourselves in ways that you don't. So, Lord, thank you for uh, reminding us of how deceitful sin can be and, um, and reminding us, Lord, that we have to be on guard against our hearts constantly. Uh, so, Lord, would you grant us that, that vigilance and that diligence to watch and make sure that we don't put things in the place where only you belong. Father, this morning I want to pray for uh, my friend Bob Burris as he is preparing to go to Liberia on another missions trip. Lord, would you bless him? I pray for his interview with uh, Training Leaders International and his future, where you call him to. Uh, Lord, I have confidence that he is, you are not done with his service. And so, uh, Father, call him into the next phase, we pray, and bless his, uh, his ministry as you have done so richly over the past 30, 40 years. Lord, now as we turn to your word, we need your help. We confess that um, we're slow to understand. Uh, Lord, we, we are prone to miss things that you say, to misinterpret. But Lord, we have confidence that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit, that this is your word to us. It was written throughout the ages so that we would come to understand. And so, Lord, with great confidence, not in our own abilities, not in our, our cleverness, but Lord, with great confidence in your Holy Spirit, and in your word, we turn now to hear and receive more. Show us more of Jesus, we pray. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at a crucial turning point now in the book of Acts. Um, almost halfway, not quite, but almost halfway. And, and the good news is I get to stop calling him Saul, and I can start calling him Paul. I have wrestled with that since the very beginning of the book. Um, but what's happening now is we're going to see this, this initial launch of international missions, the beginning of really what the rest of the book of Acts is about, which is Paul's ministry. Um, so uh, if you remember last week, when we looked at the church praying to get Paul, uh, or not Paul, Peter out of prison, 
Um, the way I explained it, as I said, there's the lower tier and the upper tier. There's the natural and the supernatural. And that uh, we operate in the natural, we see you know, life happening here, but there's the supernatural, which is above all of this, which can influence what happens in this world on a regular basis. And what I said was that there are people who misunderstand the upper tier. They either ignore it, they say it isn't there, or they think it's unruled. It's just uh, mayhem up there. So horror movies have demons doing anything they want. And we know Satan is on a really tight chain. The lesson we learned last week is that upper tier is ruled, that Jesus has conquered all those powers. Everything that happens up there is under his, his sovereign control. And so that really was something that was kind of important for Luke to show us, that that upper tier, that, that supernatural layer, is not just in utter chaos because of what comes next. As the church moves out from predominantly or even um, familiar Jewish areas into the, the wider world, we're going to have conflicts between the upper and lower tier. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning is, is a conflict. And we're going to watch and see our Jesus, who rules that upper tier, handle it perfectly. And, and so that's what's going on. But to do that, what we have to see in this section is the spirit and the church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch, we're going to look at the character, the mission, and then the opposition. But it's not just the church at Antioch. We've got to keep the spirit involved in this, too, to remember that this is supernatural. There's something more that's going on. So the character of the church at Antioch, um, Jim mentioned we start at the end of chapter 12. Um, this may be news to some of you. The chapter breaks are not inspired. <laughs> they were added much later. Um, and so we can fudge with chapter breaks, and we can ignore chapter breaks, and it's okay. Um, those, those big numbers that they print in there and those little headings are not part of the original text. So I take that end of, uh, of chapter 12 really to be the introduction because what we have is this movement of Barnabas and Saul back to Antioch. So they're coming from Jerusalem, and it says that they returned once they had completed their service. Well, do you remember last week what their service was? Prophets had come up from Jerusalem and were in Antioch and were prophesying there is going to be a famine. And so the church at Antioch, and Antioch is this rather large, powerful, important city. There's probably a lot of money, a lot of influence there. The saints there took up an offering and they put it in the hands of Barnabas and Saul and they said, take this to the saints in Judea so that they can endure this coming famine. And so that's what they did. Is they, they came down, they brought the money to the church. Um, remember Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember that story where they pretended to give money to the church and actually held some back? What you see there is the people in Judea were sharing everything communally. So they would sell things and give the money to the church and the church would distribute it. So that's what Paul and or Saul, see I did it again. I'm going to give myself license. Forget it. He's, Saul, he's Paul now. What Paul and Barnabas did was they took money from outside of Jerusalem down there to give to those people so that the saints throughout all of Judea would be cared for, would be provided for during the famine. So that's the kind of people that you meet at Antioch if you walk into their church. So once they return, they bring this young man named John, whose other name was Mark. Um, John Mark is going to come up a couple of times in this. He's not terribly important at this point. He will become really important in a little bit. So we just kind of get introduced to him, and, and we'll get a little bit of information, but he'll show up later. So they bring John Mark, and they head back to Antioch. So now here's the report. What's going on in Antioch? What happens there? There's a church there, and there were prophets and teachers. Do you remember the other week I talked about prophets, and I said, are there still prophets? Could there still be prophets? And how to measure, how to tell if somebody's a prophet or if what they're saying is accurate. 
I said, well, it's not just because I got a quiver in my liver and I felt a movement and therefore God told me that you should, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's very a, a very regulated thing. One of the most important things about a true prophet of God, somebody who really has a word from God, is that it will measure up to the word. It will not be outside the bonds of what the, the scriptures tell us. And so look at these folks in Antioch. They have prophets and teachers. What do teachers do? Teachers teach. In this context, they understand the scriptures. They take the scriptures. They help people understand them. They apply them. So you have the prophets, but you also have the teachers. So if somebody comes in with a word from God, you have teachers standing right there going, well, let's, look, let's, let's measure this against the word. What does this say here? So that, that's a, a sign of a pretty healthy church is that they have a teaching office. They have people doing this. So the, the, the church is filled with teachers and prophets. And then we get a list of them. This isn't the complete list, but it's kind of an interesting list. It starts with Barnabas and it ends with Saul. And sandwiched in between are some other people. So listen to who, the, who all is here. Um, they have Barnabas. You remember from um, chapter 4, his original name, his real given name is Joseph. But they named him Barnabas, which is son of encouragement, because he's such an encouraging kind of guy. And he's a Levite. So he's from the tribe of Levi, and he lives at, he, at least he grew up in Cyprus. And, and so now he's at Antioch. He's one of the people there. Then we have somebody called Simeon called Niger. Uh, the word Niger is Latin for the word black. So what um, we don't know much about him. This is really the only information we get. Um, one of the, the mistakes that people make is they want, I don't know why it is, but people want to, can, to boil down how many people there are in the Bible to just a few. And so some people look at this guy and say, well, this must be Simon of Cyrene, because Cyrene is mentioned here. So this must be the guy that helped care, Jesus carry the cross. Why do we have to boil him down and, and come up with fewer people? This guy's name's spelled different. It's not Simon, it's Simeon. And there's nothing that says he's from Cyrene. He's called Niger, which means he is probably dark-skinned. And if that's the case, then in my estimation, I think he probably comes from sub-Saharan Africa, which would be south of Egypt. Now, if, why would I say that? Well, first of all, because the northern, the northern Africans tend to be not as dark-skinned. They look more Middle Eastern in general. But also, when was the last time we heard about sub-Saharan Africa? There was an Ethiopian who came to Jerusalem in a eunuch and Philip was escorted out into the desert and preached the gospel to him. And the man said, why can't I be baptized? And they baptized him right there in the, the water that they found. And he went home rejoicing. And what I said at the time was there's a tradition. There's, there's some church tradition that he went to the kingdom of Ethiopia, which is not that little tiny piece of land. It's a large land area south of Egypt. And he preached the gospel. And he preached the gospel liberally throughout his, that kingdom. So it is entirely possible that Simeon may have been an, uh, from, uh, from Ethiopia and that he has now traveled because the trade routes of business or who knows what. The Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem. Why can't this man be in, in uh, Antioch? It was a very important port city, or not port city, but it was a very important um, uh, capital city. So it's entirely possible. And I, I get that because uh, I'm, I'm looking towards the Ethiopian eunuch and the fact that he is called Niger which it seemed to me that he would be darker skinned than, than the Northern Africans. So there's another man who's there. Then we get Lucius of Cyrene. Um, this is not Luke. This is another instance where people sometimes try to boil this down. They go, this must be Luke. 
this ain't Luke. <laughs> we will be introduced to Luke at Troas in chapter 16, when all of a sudden Luke, instead of saying, they went here and they went there, starts saying, we went and we did. So that's Luke. This is Lucius. It's spelled differently. It's a different person. And he's of Cyrene. Do you remember where Cyrene was? Emily, can you throw the map up? So Cyrene is modern-day Tripoli, northern Africa. That's where he's from. Cyprus is, or you see Antioch and Seleucia up there, but Cyrene is, is right around the rim of the, the um, Atlantic. And so what we've got now is we've, uh, the Atlantic, the Mediterranean. I even wrote it in there and just called it the Atlantic. Um, what we have now is two Africans in this church, a church in Syria. Um, we get a, a Jew from Cyprus, two Africans, and then we meet this other guy. Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. What an interesting description of a person. So uh, his, his name, Manaean, is actually the Greek form of a Hebrew name. So this is probably a Jew of some sort, kind of like, you know, Herod is about half Jewish. Um, so he's, he's got some Hebrew to him, and he is a lifelong friend. If you translate that word literally, it means uh, they, they shared a wet nurse bosom buddies, but we don't have to go that far because when I say bosom buddies, we could be talking about two men who met as an adult. You know, they, they didn't share a wet nurse or something, but the idea behind the word, the feeling is that intimacy, that closeness. This wasn't just an, a, a nodding acquaintance. He didn't just wave at Herod in the palace and hope he caught his attention. This is a lifelong close friend of Herod. Now, who was Herod the Tetrarch? I don't know if you remember the last week that we covered, there were about five different Herods. Um, the, the belief is this is Herod Antipas, not Herod Agrippa, who we, who we killed last week. This is one of the other Herods, um, and he was probably dead by this point. But imagine this man. He's a close friend of the king, and he's in Antioch, which was a very important capital city in that region. Menaean is a man of means. He is a man of influence, a man of power. We would consider him almost a prince. He's that kind of a person. Um, he's, he's in that kind of a standing. He's an important guy. And he's listed not first. He's listed almost at the end of the list. He's one of the teachers and prophets there. This is his role. So, and then finally, we, we get Saul at the end. And we know Saul. We know Saul is a great teacher um, because in chapter 11, Barnabas went to Tarsus and took Saul and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and, uh, and taught a great many people. So Saul is one of the teachers. So this list of people is pretty diverse, isn't it? You get people from Africa. We've covered, I think, three continents, if I correct, count, correct, count correctly. Um, well, it depends on if Cyprus is part of Asia or Europe. <laughs> depends on how you divide it up. But it's a very diverse group of people from very different positions. Uh, from uh, the lowly, uh, Barnabas sold what he had. He's probably not a rich guy now. To Menean, who was probably a really rich guy, a really powerful guy. So there's all of these different folks who were there. And what are they doing in this church in Antioch? They're worshiping the Lord and fasting. They have come together with prophets and teachers, and they are worshiping the Lord, and they're fasting. Now, fasting doesn't come up much in the book of Acts, only a couple of times. Um, so let me just take a moment to kind of explain what fasting is and isn't. Um, I, I come from a Roman Catholic background, so for me, fasting is afflicting yourself, and you, you don't eat, and you put on a really tight 
belt, like a, a rope around your waist, and you're hurt, and you're in pain, and it's just a, a miserable experience all day, and you're trying to show the Lord how dedicated and devoted you are because you're suffering, and, and boy, he should really pay attention to your, your prayers now. That is not the right way to, to fast. That God's not interested in you hurting yourself. He killed his son so you wouldn't have to hurt yourself. Jesus died in your place. You're, you're adding your suffering to it. Inflicting it on yourself is not going to aid anything. So then what do we mean by fasting? What is fasting doing? The best description I've heard of fasting, I think it was John Piper said, fasting is praying with your whole body. Fasting is taking a moment and stopping eating, not taking the most basic thing that you need, being hungry, feeling your need, and turning that into part of your prayer, saying, Lord, I need more than food. I need you. And it's appealing to God from a very personal, very inner way and appealing to God and saying, Lord, this is how much I want you, is, is I can feel the hunger. I've stirred up this hunger so that I'll remind myself of how much better. Lord, man doesn't live on, every, on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Lord, that's what I want. I want more of you. So that's, that's the idea of fasting. So these people are together at the church at Antioch. They're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. That's a pretty wonderful church. That's a pretty neat church. And then the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit in the midst of this speaks. Now, obviously, he, he, I'm pretty sure he spoke through one of the prophets. And, they, and what he said was, set aside Barnabas and Saul for the task that I've appointed them. Now, was this news to Saul that, oh, wait, I'm going to be a missionary? Do you remember his conversion? On the road to Damascus, he was blinded, led by the hand into Damascus and sat down and he sat blind for three days. When Ananias showed up, he said, Saul, this is what's going to happen. You're going to suffer for the Lord. You're going you're to stand before Gentiles and leaders and kings for the name of Jesus Christ. That was who knows how many years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago. And it hasn't happened yet. But now, at the right time, it's not that the church initiates this. The church says, oh, let's do this thing. Wouldn't this be great? The Holy Spirit initiates. This is God himself stepping in and saying, now is the time. I want you to take Saul and Barnabas, and I want you to set them aside, and we're going to do something through them. And so they respond by fasting more and praying. They've got a prophetic word. Do they just go, oh, well, somebody said it was from God. Let's do it. No, they continue fasting and they continue praying. And then they lay hands on Saul and Barnabas. So the laying out of hands sometimes in a higher church can be a way to uh, confer the Holy Spirit on somebody. Like you, I can you know, like beam him into them or something. The Holy Spirit's already involved. The church, by laying on of hands, is not imparting the Spirit to Saul and Barnabas. The church, by laying on of hands, is saying, we're putting our hands on you because we recognize God's call on you. And we're affirming that. We want you to remember when times get hard that the whole church came and laid their hands on you in response to what the Holy Spirit told us. We're sending you out because God has called you. And I got to tell you, folks, that is powerful. Because there was a time in seminary, I was burned out. I was fried. I couldn't do it anymore. Words would not go into my head. Hebrew and Greek were bouncing off my skull. I wasn't getting any sleep. I was watching my kids waffle because I wasn't there for them. And I was just I was sitting in a chair just about ready to cry. I probably was crying. And I told Lisa, I quit. I'm leaving. I don't know what the seminary thing was. And she said, remember why we're here. And I went, okay, I'll go. 
The reason I was there is because this church constantly affirmed in me while I was still just in the the military, an elder in this church constantly was coming saying, you should go to seminary, you should be a pastor, you missed your calling. When it was time to go, we had a big party and they prayed and they laid their hands on us and they sent us. And so we went to seminary. So when Saul and and Barnabas are going to go on this missionary journey, they're going to have some hard times. And what they need to remember is the church, not just their, their odd feeling, the church laid their hands on them and said, the Holy Spirit has told us to send you and we're sending you. It's very affirming. That's why it's almost impossible to be a solo Christian where you just hang out by yourself because all you've got is what's going on in your own head. You need the saints around you to confirm, to affirm, to con- contradict at times what you think is going on because God will speak through all of us and speak through the church. So that's why it was so important that they laid hands on in response to what the Spirit had said. So let's take a look at this church at Antioch and ask, what kind of church is this? Would you want to be a member of the church at Antioch? Would you like this church to be like the church at Antioch? They sent money to Judea. This is largely a Gentile area. The list is is kind of mixed Jew and Gentile. They picked up money out of the generosity of their own hearts because of response to a need, they sent money away. They gave their money away. They're a generous people. They're giving. They taught, they prophesied, they fast, and they worship. They weren't a social club that sat around and talked about the game. On, uh, I want to talk about the game, but not now. They didn't sit around and talk about the game or go to the country club together or that kind of stuff. What they did was spiritual work. They did spiritual things together. They had prophets who would speak the word of God to them. They had teachers who would pick up the word and interpret it to them. They fasted together. They prayed. They worshiped together. This was a spiritual community, not simply a country club. They had Jews, Africans, and Greeks all worshiping together, a very diverse body, international. It looked like their city. That's, it wasn't just monochromatic, where it's only us, us foreign no more. It was a very diverse church. And when it came down to it, they sent away their best. They laid hands on Barnabas and Saul, who by all accounts are some of the best of the saints there, and they sent them away. They said, you go, you take off. And because of all of this, because of all of this this mixture of who they are, do you remember what they were called? It was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And what I said the other week was when we talk about Christians, what that word means is not little Christs. There's a teaching in the church that says it's a a pejorative or a diminutive term saying they were little Christs. That's not what it means. What it means is these are Christ people. This is a Christ group. And so when when the world, the outside world, looked at that church, what they saw was Christ because of this diversity, because of this love, because of this generosity, because of this worship. This is that supernatural aspect to a community. There's more going on than just what happens here on a Sunday morning. There's a whole unseen level that that there's things happening there. And and this church recognizes it and operates in it. So that's the character of the church. What about the mission of the church? So being sent out by the Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. So if you see Seleucia on the map, that was a major port. The Roman... Um, a fleet in the Mediterranean docked there. That was their home base. It was a pretty significant place. If you went to Seleucia, you could get on a ship and get just about anywhere in the empire. 
there was a good chance you would get out. So they go down there. The, the funny thing is it's a port city that's six miles from the water. It's set back pretty far, but it was still a major city and it was attached to the port. And so that's where they head. They go where they know they can get on a ship and get where they need to go. So they go from Antioch down to Seleucia and they sail to Cyprus. So they just sail across the, that little stretch, 60 miles at the most, uh, and they land at Cyprus. Common port, be really easy to get back and forth. And so they go to Cyprus. Now what happens next in the narrative is interesting because Paul just zips through, or I mean Luke just zips through it really quick. He doesn't give us a lot of details. Listen to how he explains it. When they arrived at Salamis, they uh, proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jew, and they had John to assist them, and when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. <laughs> Can we slow down a little bit? They went through the whole island. It wasn't like they got on the freeway at Salamis and got off when they got to Paphos an hour and a half later. They went through the whole island, and Luke zips past all of that. He doesn't even tell us about the ministry in Salamis, except to say they went to the synagogues of the Jews. There is a well-documented throughout history large Jewish presence on Cyprus. That's not a surprise. Now, in the old days, Paphos was the capital, but it got changed, and now there's a proconsul ruling there. Salamis is the capital of, of um, Cyprus. So he goes to the capital city, and Luke just zips past it. Doesn't even tell us what's going on. But they go there, and so he moves them quickly to Paphos because that's where the action is. That's where the biggest part of this is. So go ahead and switch to the, the sermon graphic. What I want to talk about under this, this idea of the mission of the church, what are they doing? They're going and they're sharing Jesus Christ around here. So I took this picture of this sign a long time ago. This is in Illinois where I live. And it always struck me as we can either head towards Zion or we can head towards Antioch. And so here's the idea is Antioch is this church that is vibrant, it's healthy, it's engaged, and it is on mission. It is sending people out. When Paul and Barnabas finish their tour, they will come back to Antioch and they will report what happens, and then they go out again. This is a, a church engaged in the mission now. When you think of Zion, if, especially if you read Zion in the Psalms and those kind of things, it's this idealized Mount Jerusalem, this, this beautiful place where we will eventually be. And, and the way that it's described, we will get to Zion. We will arrive there. But if we want to get there too fast, we're, going, we're missing Antioch. If we're going to take the freeway route around Antioch, we're missing something if we want to just be Zion now. In other words, we could be a church that is just really friendly and really helpful and really nice to each other and very insular and we don't talk to anybody else and we know, nobody knows us because we want Zion now. Or we can be a church like Antioch and say, we're engaged, we're on a mission, we're doing something. The two words that, use, that are in, in classic theology that are used to describe it are the church militant and the church at rest. Now, when they say the church militant, that doesn't mean we're out there blowing up buildings and killing people. What it means is we are engaged in the mission that Jesus has given us. We are engaged. We're, we're working on what he's called us to do. What did he tell us to do? You, you see it every time you walk out of the building. Go, make disciples, teach, baptize. That's the church militant. Before we get to Zion, we are the church militant. We are engaged in the mission that he's given us. We are reaching the nations. We are taking the gospel to the people of the world. That's Antioch. We will get to Zion, and then we will be the church at rest. And, and if you look at the bottom of the screen there, 
the little green arrow is pointing towards Antioch. It was subliminal. I didn't even know it was there, but it's kind of a subliminal message saying, be the church at Antioch. <laughs> See, I'm brainwashing you and you didn't even notice, did you? So the idea there is, is the church engaged, the church on mission, the church rolling forward, doing what she's been called to do, and the church at rest. And so the, one, the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, has a, uh, um, a verse in it that says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits, with consummate, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious will be the church at rest. Do you hear what it said? The tumult and the toil of her war. We are engaged in a battle. That's that upper tier, lower tier thing I was talking about. There are forces that Jesus has defeated that still don't believe that he's defeated them. There's something that, that needs to be conquered, and the church is going forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and bringing the, uh, the, the word to the nations. She waits the consummation of peace forevermore. There is coming a day when the war ends. Jesus' kingdom comes over all the earth, and then we rest in him. So when, when do we get to Zion? How do we get to Zion? When is Zion coming? The verse that I go to a lot, I think it makes a lot of sense to me, is from Romans chapter 11. And, and there Paul says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So how do we get to Zion? All the fullness of the Gentiles must come in. Once we've got the fullness of the Gentiles, then the end comes. Then it's over. That's when our mission is complete. So the Jews and the Gentiles are coming into the church. And once the full number is in, then all of Israel will be saved. So what's our role in that? What do we do in that? Well, 2 Peter 3.11, Peter says, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? How do, you, how do you wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God? I thought God had it planned. How can I have any influence on that, any impact on that? Well, if we pair up that with what it says in, in Romans 11, the way you do that is you are church on mission. We are gathering the full number of the Gentiles. And until they come in, the mission's not complete. So how do you hasten the day? Go out and welcome more Gentiles. Bring more people in. That's... That's the picture here of this church at Antioch. They're engaging in the mission. Now, their mission field was gigantic. The, the church was not very big. What happened? Well, we've discovered more of the world. We, we, we invented ways to get around the world a lot faster. And so now the mission field didn't really shrink at all. Uh, the church is big, but the mission field grew proportionally too. So that's, that's what we're called to do. That's our mission. That's how to engage like the church at Antioch, as we are on mission. Now, does that mean since Jesus has defeated all his foes, Jesus is the one that's doing this, the Holy Spirit has called us, it's smooth sailing from here on out, right? We just go out and cast our seed and fruit grows everywhere and boy, it's great. Isn't that wonderful? That's not the lesson. What did the hymn say? Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war. So there is opposition. Hear what happens next. When they come to Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
He was with the, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this is what Luke has been rushing to. This is why he told the story so quickly, why the narrative pace zoomed past everything else on the island and lands here, is he wants us to meet the opposition. Now, who is this guy? He is a certain magician. The word for ma magician there is magus, and it's where we get the word magic from. Um, it could be a charlatan. It could be, you know, like the people on the street with the card games and, hey, watch this, who deceive you and stuff. But... At that time, the word magus meant more than just a charlatan. It would be uh, a, a diviner, someone who would read the stars or examine the liver of a goat to determine what was going to happen and would be there to counsel uh, people in power. So it might not be that this guy is just a charlatan pulling tricks on people. Uh, that's not what the word magician means. However, Luke clears it up for us because the next thing he calls him is a false prophet. So do you remember Simon Magus? In, uh, in Samaria, how he had impressed everybody with his tricks. Simon Magus apparently did parlor tricks and, and magic skills and those kind of things. Bar-Jesus, what he does is he has a prophetic office. So he's standing next to the proconsul telling him what's going to happen next, what's coming up, what's going to go on. So he's the guy whispering in the proconsul's ear. He, he is a false prophet. He's, he's telling him a lot of things that he wants to hear. And his name, Bar-Jesus, means, literally, it means son of Jesus, or son of Yeshua, or son of salvation. Um, and like Bar-Nabbas, it might be where they named him Bar-Jesus to recognize something about him. Why did they name uh, Joseph Barnab uh, Barnabas? Bar means son, son of encouragement, because Barnabas was an encouraging, Joseph was an encouraging uplifting kind of guy, the guy you wanted to be around because he'd always be there to tell you how things are great. You're doing wonderful. The Lord loves you. Let me tell you about Jesus and how much he cares for you. He was an encouragement to people. So calling him the son of encouragement didn't mean his dad's name was encouragement. It meant that was a characteristic of him. So this, the, the names for um, Bar-Jesus are going to be really complicated and confusing and we don't have good answers. But basically what it means is he's the son of Jesus or the son of Joshua the son of salvation. So it might be people look at him and say, oh, he's got this magic insight. He's got this deep wisdom, this, this insight view of what's going on. And so he can lead us. He can, he can show us salvation, not in the eschatological sense, but in the common everyday sense. He can deliver us from the, the, the business deals that go south and that kind of stuff. So that may be who he is. And he was with the proconsul, um, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was in charge of uh, Paphos because it wasn't the capital anymore. It had been demoted, and so this man was in charge of it. Um, we don't know his name. Isn't that funny? I thought his name was Sergius Paulus. Paulus is his last name. Sergius is a title, is a, kind of a middle name kind of thing. We don't know what his first name is. There is tons of archaeological evidence of the Sergius Paulus family on Cyprus and throughout the Roman Empire as very important people. So when we meet a, a Sergius Paulus here, it's not a surprise that he's a bigwig on Cyprus. There's plenty of archaeological evidence to back that up. As a matter of fact, there's an inscription that talks about a Lucius Sergius Paulus, who was a proconsul around that time. So it could be that's who we're talking about. But he's the proconsul. He is the ruling family. He is what's in charge. And the great thing that is said about him is he's a man of intelligence. 
He is a man of insight, a man of understanding. So if he's a man of intelligence, a man of insight and understanding, why does he have a magician, a false prophet standing next to him? Well, because you're thinking in post-enlightenment terms. You, you're, you're thinking like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who says religion is all poopa, and we don't do that anymore because now we're men of science and we figured it all out. Um, at the time, there are an a number of examples throughout the Roman Empire where Jewish prophets or Jewish magicians had positions of influence and, and power. They, they were right there and they were well known. The Jews at the time were recognized not just as this weird tribe in, in Palestine, but they were also recognized as people with deep, deep spiritual religious beliefs. And they, they were recognized as people who had a lot of spiritual insight and understanding. So if a false prophet comes up, of course, this pagan, this, this Sergius Paulus would say, yeah, come and inform me. Because that was the science of the day. That was your intelligence. That was your satellite imagery. That was internet spying. That was breaking into servers and stealing stuff as you had this power. Remember the upper tier? The understanding amongst the, the pagans was that was unruled. So sometimes you'd get a special person who could break in and peek into the upper tier and see what was really going on. And some people could get into the upper tier and manipulate things. And so a person of power would say, yeah, I want Sergio, I want uh, uh, Simon Magus, or um, Simon Magus, I'm still back on the other guy. I, I want Bar-Jesus next to me. He's my source. He's my understanding. So the man is with him, and the guy calls, and he says, hey, I've heard about this Saul and Barnabas guy. Um, I want to hear from them. Uh, what are they saying? So he sought to hear a word from him. Now, verse 8 is where it gets really confusing, but... Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. Who's Elymas? Elymas is Bar-Jesus. Okay, good. Um, for that is the meaning of his name. Okay, what does Elymas mean? We have no idea. The best we can get is it sounds like it could be kind of the Greek version of an Aramaic word for a wise man or a sage. Sort of. But not quite. So when it comes down to it, we don't really know what Elymas means. And then Luke doesn't tell us what the interpretation of his name. Which name? False prophet? Bar-Jesus? How does that? We don't know how it connects. So I'm really sorry. Um, I had to bring it up, but I have no idea what that means. That was his name. And the interpretation or the application of his name. Um, and here's the important part. Here's where we know exactly what Luke is talking about. He opposed them. So as... As Sergius Paulus is saying, I want an appointment with these guys. Bar-Jesus or Elymas is stepping in and going, cancel that appointment. Don't make that phone call. He is trying to frustrate this man getting to be with uh, Saul and Barnabas. Um, it says that he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Why would he seek to turn the proconsul away from the faith? I think he has an understanding of what Paul and Barnabas are talking about. I can call him Paul because the very next sentence is Paul, who was called uh, Saul, who was called Paul. Paul and Barnabas. I think he knew what was what the message was, what the the truth was. He understood that this Jesus, the Nazarene, was the Christ. He was the anointed one. He was the new ruler. That puts Elymas out of work. This Jesus who died and rose again. Well, he is the ruler over all these things. I don't get to whisper in his ear. So out of self-preservation, he's trying to keep Saul and Barnabas away, trying to keep them at arm's length. 
And then Saul, who was called Paul, thank you, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. He looks him right in the eyes, dead square in the eyes, and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You son of the devil. He's the son of Joshua, but he's the son of the devil. Barnabas is the son of righteousness, or the son of encouragement. This guy is the son of the devil. He is doing the work of Satan. He's doing exactly what Satan would have him do, which is oppose the gospel. Keep it from people. Don't let people hear the gospel. You son of the devil. He turns that phrase right back on his head. You enemy of all righteousness. What righteousness is he opposing at this point? He's opposing the righteousness of preaching the gospel to a Gentile. The gospel of Jesus Christ is you can be right with God because Jesus died to take your sins away. He rose again to be present before his father to represent you. You can have absolute, total, perfect righteousness that's not based on your own works, but based on the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ because of what he did on your behalf. And this man is opposing that. That is all righteousness. All righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. There's nothing we add to it. And he's opposing that message. He's telling the proconsul, don't listen to these guys. They're going to lie to you. He's opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. The word villainy, all right, how many people are thinking Star Wars right now? I can't get it out of my head, so I just have to say it so we can move on. You will never find a more wretched, sky, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. There, we're done with it. Villainy there is people who are deceitful and tricks, tricky and, and trying to get by with something and, and pull something over somebody's eyes. What, what Bar-Jesus is doing, what LMS is doing, is he is full of deceitfulness and trickery. That's all he's done. He's a false prophet. He has no word for Sergius Paulus that could ever help him. All he can ever do is lie. And that's why in the end, Paul says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? God has made a straight path for people to go directly to him. He has created through Jesus Christ a highway that will take you right to him, and you're trying to make that thing all curvy and confusing and put branches on it and stuff. Will you not stop deceiving it? And what he says is, will you not stop making uh, crooked the straight paths of the Lord? What he needs to understand, what Elymas needs to see and to understand is, you are not opposing Paul and Barnabas. You are not opposing the church at Antioch. You are opposing something even more startling. You are opposing the Lord. And if he's a Jewish uh, false prophet, he knows what the Lord means. Yahweh, God's covenant name, the name they called Jesus. You are opposing him. He's the one that you've crossed. This is the one whom you're opposed to. And what's the result of that? How does Paul res respond to this? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You crossed him, he struck you, and you will be blind and un unable to see the sun for a time. Now, hold on for a second. Elymas was a false prophet. His tool of trade was his words, telling people of you know, future events and divining what was going to come because of the stars. Why would Paul make him blind? Why would the Lord make him blind? 
if his tool was speaking, why not make him mute for a period of time? That would have been my choice. But we need him out of the way so we can preach the gospel. Lord, strike him so he can't talk anymore. We'll press on, and when we're done, we'll go away. Why blind him? I think what, what happened here is, I think the Lord is painting a picture. And that picture is, there is opposition to the gospel, and this man's a Jew. We've seen Jewish opposition to the gospel so far in Jerusalem quite a bit, Right? Peter and Paul, I mean, uh, Saul was, was persecuting people. Peter was thrown in jail. Uh, Stephen was executed. It goes right back to what Jesus would say. You think you can see, but you're actually blind. You can't see the truth. Jesus stands before his opponents and he says, I'm here. And they get mad and he says, you're blind. They said, how can we be blind? Because you can't see. You can't interpret what's actually going on. So I think what, what God did through uh, Paul at this point was blinded him to make the point, you can't see the truth. You're, you're, you're lost. Now, the encouraging thing is it says you would be blind for a period of time. So maybe he was blinded for a while and that came, it, it came clean. Consider the opponents now for a second. Elymas is a false prophet. Saul was a teacher. Both of them opposed Jesus. They didn't want the gospel going forward. When Saul is heading to Damascus to persecute people, Jesus meets him on the road, blinds him. With Elymas, he didn't go anywhere. He stayed where he was He's in his city. He was trying to present, prevent the gospel from getting somebody else, and God blinded him. Saul was able to see after three days because somebody from the church came, laid his hands on him, and said, be baptized. Elymas, no idea. There's actually some, some historical evidence that he never turned. Um, there's some, uh, there was a magus, a magician from Cyprus, who helped Felix, who we'll meet later on, lead and woo Drusilla, his wife, away from somebody else. And it's entirely possible it may be this guy. We don't know. So apparently he continued in his, his um, deceit and villainy. But God will have mercy and open his eyes again. He'll be able to see it sometime in the future. And so the result then is immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. He couldn't see. He is now out of the picture. He can't stand and whisper in the proconsul's ear anymore. He, he can't make it out of the room without bumping into something. And so he needs people to lead him by the hand. So what happens in the end? The proconsul believed. He heard the message. He heard what, um, what Paul and Barnabas had to say, and he believed. He was astonished at the fact that Elymas was blinded. No, he was astonished at the teaching. He was blown away by the teaching of the Lord. What did God have to say to him? So for this pagan to hear this message, God the eternally begotten Son, in perfect harmony, in perfect love, in perfect everything with his Father, added to his immensity humanity, and he came to earth. And he didn't come as a ruling king, as, as the, the conqueror of nations. No, he came as a servant. He came as a humble man. And you could see Paul, Sergius Paul saying, why would he do that? It's steeped in Greek philosophy. Why on earth would, would the divine take on physical form? It's, it's dirty. It's nasty. He doesn't want physical form. 
And Paul could say something along the lines of, he came and he took on a physical form so that he could die in your place. So that he could take the burden of your sin. He could crush all of your enemies, including sin and death and even hell, and crush them in his own body. And he's dead? No, not anymore. Saul would look him in the face and say, I met him. I, I, I encountered him. I was a violent opposer of the church, and I met him on the road to Damascus. He came to me. He showed me that he actually lives. He's in heaven. He's standing at the right hand of God the Father, even at this moment. And that's the message that blew Sergius Paulus away. He was astonished at this idea that God would take on humanity and would take it all the way down to a servant. And not only would he take on humanity, he would die. He would suffer death. God would suffer death. And then he would overcome everything. He would undo all of it by raising again. That's the good news that was preached to him. That was what he, he blew his mind. And remember, Sergius Paulus is an intelligent man. Now, you know, in our post-enlightenment, I'm going to bag on the enlightenment a bit. In our post-enlightenment, we all, hey, still a backwards, you know, hick. He still believes in prophets. And we all know better than that, right? This is so unintellectual. For a man of his day, this was the height of intellectualism. This was the most intelligent thing that could happen. And to tell you the truth, the gospel today is not unintellectual. It is treated as, it's, as if it's the opposite of, of reason, but it's not. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, let me just quote, Tim Keller tells a story about when he was in college in the 1970s. Um, there was a lot going on, the Vietnam War, they just invited, invaded uh, um, Cambodia. Uh, there was a lot happening, and what he and his group did is they went into the quad in the middle of the campus, and he said, we put up a sign that said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. Right? He was on a campus. That meant something to people on the campus. They put up a sign that said that, that made this, uh, this, um, this proclamation that the resurrection is intellectually credible. It makes sense. It's logical. It's rational. It's reasonable. And it's existentially satisfying. That means the resurrection of Jesus Christ can satisfy your soul. Now, in the 1960s, they were going after everything else to satisfy their soul. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Full bore. And to stand there and say the resurrection is, is credible and satisfying was, was challenging. And what do you think the results were? He said they put the sign up, they sat under it, and we're uh, out in the quad where people could see and when people read it, they might engage, they might talk with them. Then they go on break. When we came back from, to school in September, our little group of 10 was surprised to see over 100 students show up to our first meeting of the year. Over the next year, we saw dozens and dozens of people come to Christ. It was not the result of any planned campaign. It was not the result of a planned program of any kind. What did they do? They showed up, and they made a statement, and then they talked about it. And here's his, lesson, here's his example. He says, it was an example of a lesson we must learn from both the Bible and church history. That is, you can steward a gospel movement, but you cannot make one start. You can steward a gospel movement, but you cannot make one start. So the Holy Spirit started a gospel movement. The Holy Spirit showed up at Antioch and said, send out Saul and Barnabas for the mission to which I've called them. And then the Holy Spirit showed up in Paphos and performed a miracle. And the Holy Spirit converted Sergius Paulus to the faith. And what did Paul and Barnabas do? They shepherded it. They stewarded it. But they didn't come and say, we're going to spark this fire. 
They simply obeyed where their Lord was leading. They walked in the footsteps in which he was walking. The reason I called this sermon the spirit and the church at Antioch is because it's those two things, isn't it? It's the upper tier, the Holy Spirit, the immaterial, the thing we can't quantify, that we have no scientific probes we can stick in the Holy Spirit and observe how he behaves. He just is. He just does. That's just the way he is. It's beyond the capability of what we can measure and we can demonstrate. The Holy Spirit is at work. And does he do it, what they call ad extra, without anything else? No, he does it in and through the church at Antioch. People who are engaged in doing what he's called them to do. They're praying, they're fasting, they're worshiping, they're studying the word, they're meeting together. And the Holy Spirit shows up and says, let's go. And then he accomplishes them, he accompanies them on their mission. You get both the lower tier and the upper tier functioning perfectly here. The Holy Spirit is at work in and through the church, not apart from the church. So that's why I said at the beginning, let's head towards Antioch. We need to be the Antioch church. We need to be the church militant, the church on mission, the church engaged, so that we can arrive at Zion. This is a little deceitful because it's two opposite directions. It would be nice if it was kind of like, you know, Antioch first and then a couple miles later is Zion. Um, I couldn't manipulate the sign. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's, I think that's what we're called to do as we go through. Now, the rest of the book is going to be a lot of uh, Paul's um, missionary journeys. And, and you can look at it and go, oh, he was a super saint. He was an apostle. He was beyond anything we can do. John Mark was there. John Mark went with him. And, and what it says is that John Mark was there to assist them. That does not mean that John Mark's role was to set up the folding chairs and to put the flyers out on the telephone poles and to uh, welcome people in and, and smile at them as they came in. The, the word for assist them is a little bit more elaborate. It has a little bit more robustness to it. It's probable that what would happen is John Mark would do some of the teaching and, te and preaching. John Mark was engaged. The main guys were Barnabas and Saul. But John Mark was there. And we're going to get just a few more things about John Mark, and then he's hardly mentioned again. He's, an, he's one of us, a normal Christian. Okay, so he wrote a gospel, but you know. The idea is, on mission, there are no ordinary Christians. There are people that the Holy Spirit will use in a unique way, and there are people he will use in a different way. And not everybody gets to be up on the stage speaking. And that's okay. John Mark was still part of the church in Antioch, these other guys who we never hear of again in the scriptures were part of the church at Antioch. The people who were not even named were part of the church at Antioch. On mission, engaging the world, sending people, praying, fasting. So that's why I say we want to be heading towards Antioch. We'll get to Zion. It's coming. That's the hope. That's the, 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 what focuses us and reminds us to keep on mission is because the goal, what we win on the other side, after the persecution, after the opposition, after the trials, what we win on the other side outweighs it all. Blows away anything you'd lose. You can't lose that. You're going to kill me? That's all you can do is kill me. You can't take away Zion. You're going to burn my house down? That's all you can do is burn my house down? You can't take away Zion. My house lasts for a few years. Zion is eternal. It's going to be there forever. So this is the church on mission. This is, this is how it begins. This is where we start. 
Um, next week, we'll continue on to the continent. We'll head into, into what's modern-day Turkey. But this is the start of the mission, and I find it exhilarating to say we get to go with the Spirit. The Spirit's going to conduct His work, and we get to walk with Him. So let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, we want you to come and be with us. We want you to, to uh, show us what mission you're calling us to. And Lord, we anticipate you being out in front of us, winning hearts and souls, opening, opening minds, turning away opposition in the ways that you know is best. And so, Lord, I pray that you would accompany all of us as we are engaging in, in sharing about Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, as we're on the college campus tomorrow, just praying for people, Lord, would you make divine appointments? Would you lead people to us who need prayer, who need to be encouraged, who need to see that they are loved because they're image bearers of God, not because of their money or their position or their power, but simply because they are God's creation. And Lord, throughout the week in the numerous ways we don't even know about, the ways we, even the people involved might miss, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you empower them and, and equip them and fit them for the mission that you've called them to? And Lord, we long for the day when we get to Zion, when we enter into that heavenly city and there would be no unrighteousness, no filth, no opposition, no temple, because God and the Lamb will, will dwell right in the middle. But until that day, Lord, fit us for service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.